everyone, and welcome to the latest episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley, a resident fellow at the American Enterprise Institute. And I am Ian Rowe, also a resident fellow at AEI. And today we are thrilled to be joined by Greg McKay. He is the Director of Worldwide Health and Human Services for Microsoft, and he used to be the Director of the Child Welfare Agency in Arizona. And we brought Greg on to talk to us about a couple of things today. Broadly speaking, we want to talk about kind of the state of child welfare during the pandemic and the lockdown, what we've learned. Greg was one of the signatories to a white paper that we produced, the AEI produced. We have a child welfare innovation working group, and a number of people signed on to some of the recommendations that we made about what we can learn from the pandemic and what are the policies that we should be engaged in going forward to make sure that these crises, when they happen, we are better prepared for. So Greg, I guess the first thing that I think would be be great if you could just tell us a little bit about your background and how you got into this work, because I think it's a fascinating story and worth some people knowing about. (laughs) Yeah, thank you both for having me on. I'm glad to be here. Yeah, my background is confusing to me as well, it seems, this journey in life. But I spent 20 years in law enforcement, primarily investigating major crimes. I I investigated crimes against children, which were sex crimes, internet exploitation, and child abuse for about seven years in a city police department. During that time, my wife and I became Arizona foster parents. So we had an inside look at the system of care from a provider standpoint. So I have that lens as well. Moving forward in the police career, I went on to homicide where I investigated many of Arizona's high-profile child death and, and child murder cases that actually turned into a task force by Governor Brewer back in 2011, which was investigating these catastrophic cases after government system involvement. So I was actually loaned from the city of Phoenix Police Department to the former Arizona governor to create a new legislative office regarding criminal investigative expertise in a child welfare system. So I did that for a few years, and we had some great results in Arizona. And then I was returning to the police department when the next governor was elected, and he appointed me to head up the entire child welfare system in Arizona, which at the time was experiencing a lot of crises. I mean, we were worst ranked in the nation. And you know, but after five years with a, an amazing team in Arizona and great support, we we ended up going from worst to first in most categories and corrected a lot of longstanding problems. But you know, it's been quite the journey. And I find myself now, you might say, you know, what is a guy like you doing at Microsoft, a technology company? But you know, as you heard in, in his journey in life, I, I spent so many years you know, on the street in investigations, investigating horrific crimes and looking for better outcomes for people then to system leadership and looking for better outcomes for people. And, and eventually what I found was, you know, all the reforms that have gone into bettering child welfare systems and bettering outcomes, many of them have just fallen flat. So, you know, I'm at a stage where I really feel like technology could be the, the force multiplier that's been needed to really add capacity and horsepower to child welfare systems so that they can do more, do better. So I'm very glad to be where I'm at now, and I'm, and I'm looking for Microsoft to really drive some of these hopes and ambitions I've had for a long time in, in bettering the lives of vulnerable people. So thanks again for having me. Yeah, I mean, can you just describe when you say you went from worst to first, what's an example of the categories, particularly as it relates to child outcomes? 
Yeah, thank you for asking. So, you know, when I when I talk about my first week on the job, I realized that the Arizona Child Abuse Hotline did not answer the phone. It took so long to answer the phone that a third of callers actually hung up and didn't get to report the maltreatment. Next to that, we had 16,000 backlog cases where these were investigations that just needed to be done. We had 93% growth in foster care, which was the highest growth in five years in America, which caused a complete capsizing of our service array, which meant there was no more foster homes. There was no more group homes. There was no more shelters in Arizona. So kids coming into care would sleep in offices and in the cars of government employees waiting for a safe place to go. And all the while there was, you know, kids coming into care, stayed in care for years instead of months because of backlogs in the service array and provision of care to children and families and and also court backlogs. Not to mention, I couldn't make payroll because this exhausted our entire budget. So I had to ask for an emergency appropriation just to pay staff of a 3,000 person organization. So I did that. I walked into my office through protesters with signs and I got home to find the media on my doorstep scaring my family. So these were tough times, Ian. So I appreciate the question because I could say that what we did in, in the change in Arizona is we, we made our hotline number one. It took 28 seconds or less to answer a call and only 2% of people hung up. We eliminated the entire case backlog we had the fastest response time rate at like 98% response time compliance. We reduced the number of foster care in Arizona by 25%. We reduced the amount of shelters in Arizona by 78%. More kids were living in family settings and with kin by percentage. And all these things you know, correlated into half the turnover rate that we had when I started and a sound budget. You know, and when it comes to the foster care system, you know, we dropped foster care in Arizona by 25% and saw no increase in recurrent maltreatment once kids, you know, either stayed in their home or reunify, which really tells us that the system, because it was under such duress, were taken potentially in the wrong children that didn't belong in the system in the first place. So we knew we were doing the right things. And you know, and those are the categories that, that we move from, you know, worst ranked to first ranked in America. And, and, and all while doing so, you know, part of the problem in Arizona was a 26-year-old mainframe system, antiquated technology that really tied employees to a brick and mortar building to do their work. And, you know, during my tenure, we replaced that with a new, you know, high-speed cloud-based federally approved technology system that is really going to be groundbreaking for Arizona and hopefully many other states that, that kind of emulate that. See, Ian, I, that's why we need to have Greg on the podcast. Now you understand. Yeah, um, <laughs> well, I, I think that's the, actually the technology element is kind of a great segue to talk about some of what we have noticed and what you've noticed during the lockdown in terms of the ability of child welfare workers to do their jobs. And one of the biggest things that came up immediately was the number of caseworkers who said, you know, they had no ability to work virtually. They needed to access paper files that were in their offices. And I was wondering, you know, what your observations were, Greg, during this time about, you know, the, the inability of child welfare to do its work because of a lack of technology. Yeah, I mean, it was huge and it varied across the country. Fortunately, in Arizona, because of all the work we did on the technology front, you know, they were able to, and I say they because I was out of the seat by then, but I'm still in touch weekly with leadership there. 
they were able to mobilize a 3,000 person workforce within 36 hours. And I mean, that's remarkable because they had some of these, these things in place. Many other states just abrogated their duties. And, and that was because they either had no way of responding safely or their local state or governments or even unions said, you know, you're, you're not to respond. So, you know, we, we set a culture early on in Arizona that child welfare workers are first responders. And in, in most cases, they are. They're the ones responding first to cases of intense abuse for children. And then they call police to come after the fact. So they, sh- they sure are required personnel, mandatory personnel. There should never be a time where you just don't go out and ensure safety of a child that's been reported to your hotline. You know, but the reprieve that child welfare has gotten has occurred at their front end in that their child abuse hotlines are receiving 50 to 60% less volume now because children are not within the eyesight of mandated reporters, teachers, healthcare providers, child care providers. These are the people that see the maltreatment, that hear about the maltreatment, and, you know, and then therefore are reporting that maltreatment to systems to respond to. So, you know, there has been a decline in that because kids are not being visualized, which is tragic because some people are saying, well, maybe the system's been right-sized now. I mean, we're not hearing about these cases. Well, I'm telling you that the egregiousness of the violence and what children are being exposed to because of these conditions off the charts. And when the vaccines start to do their job and people start to come out and go back to schools, these child welfare agencies are going to receive a glut of incoming demand that they're not going to be ready to react to. And it's going to cause a cascading effect throughout their system that then everybody will be pointing out and hollering about. So we really need to get on the front foot of of how to stave that off now rather than waiting for that next crisis to hit. So Greg, it sounds like you would be a proponent of getting schools physically opened as rapidly as possible. I mean, I ran a network of public charter schools for 10 years and you're absolutely right that kids are home, it's not being reported, but that doesn't mean that there are any lesser number of child abuse cases. And in fact, there's a lot of evidence to suggest that there would be more given the economic and other stresses that people are under. Yeah, I mean, absolutely. And understandably, we were learning a lot about COVID in the beginning. You know, so the reaction that took place last spring really should have changed as time went on. And when I saw Mayor Garcetti in Los Angeles given a press conference standing in front of a podium that said, safer at home, a person like me really cringed to that because you know, from my life in law enforcement to my life leading the child welfare agency, I can tell you that, you know, these children that are living in compromised settings, poverty, parents with substance use disorders, mental health issues, domestic violence, trauma, they need to get out of those environments and get into safe spaces like schools. They want to be there. And it's the only place where they will receive the kind of intervention that they often need. And COVID absolutely has caused an increase in those kind of behaviors from the frailties people are experiencing. Drug addictions and over, overdoses have really magnified in this time. You know, so isolation is not the best way forward for children. And I think we learn, and I obviously wouldn't want to want to comment for doctors, but I, I think we've learned that the risks are less than, than maybe perceived. So yeah, I do believe 
kids should be back in, in learning environments for a variety of reasons. To learn, to socialize, many of these kids don't have the technology or the ability to have remote learning. So just from a growth perspective and a wellness perspective, they need school. And from a protecting children from abuse, maltreatment, and neglect, and intervening when they even need basic supports is really happening. So obviously, based on my background, I'm a big proponent of getting back to school safely with considerations to teachers and everybody else involved in the process. But but I am a proponent of getting, getting kids back in those, those settings sooner rather than later. Yeah, there have even been states, some early reports I saw from Alaska and Arkansas that they are seeing higher rates of serious abuse hospitalizations than they normally would because these cases have been kind of festering unwatched for so long that by the time they do come to anyone's attention, they're much more serious. But I wanted to to ask sort of, you know, given what you're saying about this, the isolation that kids are experiencing, and also about, you know, the fact that in many agencies, you know, it didn't seem like, you know, these kids were being seen in person. One reaction to that has been, well, we should extend the timelines for kids in foster care to make sure that, you know, families get enough services and that we have enough time to make sure that there are proper investigations done and that we do everything we can to keep families together. And there have even been proposals in Congress to change the timelines from the Adoption and Safe Families Act to essentially allow us to leave kids in foster care longer. What do you make of that? Do you think that there's reasonable assumptions behind these proposals and should we be extending timelines? I don't think we should. Oftentimes, when there's crisis like we've experienced throughout this pandemic, you know, sometimes it's unavoidable not to be able to adhere to those timelines. And somebody saying, even when the federal government has to drive compliance because they fund these systems and they send out kind of notices, hey, you got to cure these behaviors, you've got to continue on with the timelines that are set for you. You know, if there's no capacity to do that, then it's really hard to achieve. So if courts cannot convene, if they have backlogs growing themselves or they have no technology to do virtual hearings, then they can't adhere to the timelines. You know, so saying you must maintain these requirements and actually agencies being able to carry that out are two different things. But children cannot languish in systems of care. It is bad for everybody. From a point of their permanency, the longer they sit in a state of unknowing, waiting for service providers to have, again, the capacity or the technology or whatever they need to be able to deliver court-mandated services to the family to cure the issues that brought a child into care. That is all backing up, you know, and it needs a solution. And the solution just can't be well, we'll extend the, the amount of time because these kids are sitting in homes. And let's not forget, the foster homes that are taking care of these children are forming bonds. They're losing their parental bonds as time goes on. And eventually, you're going to break that a year, two years, three years, maybe four years later when a child no longer even knows where they came from. Some of these children you know, are babies when they come into the system. And they're sitting in care until they're three and four years old and being returned to someone they don't know. So it's just devastating to think of kids sitting in the system and all the people around them waiting for some type of permanence to happen. But from a system perspective, this is how systems end up without a service array. Arizona had no more places to take children because 
it took too long to get children exiting the system. So the same amount of children were coming in every day, but less and less and less were leaving every day, which created no capacity left in the system. So where are we going to get these homes? And obviously, think about it. If you wanted to be a foster parent two years ago, and you were considering it potentially with your family, well, now what? Now you're thinking of bringing children in from who knows where they came from with what illness they might have. Do they have COVID? Are they going to go visit their family members and bring COVID back to me and my family members? So it's becoming even harder and harder and harder to get foster homes and foster parents. So if you if you add to those timelines, it's going to have system-wide consequences that are not going to be good for anybody long-term. I mean, you hit on one of the recommendations in the report that Naomi referenced is adapting foster parent recruitment and retention strategies. Now that you're at Microsoft, which is an extraordinary place to be given the function that you're to serve, what's the single biggest technology implementation that you think would be most effective at increasing the number of people who consider foster care for preserving people who are already in foster care? What is that intervention? Yeah, it's interesting. From kind of tip to tail, I'm seeing potential at Microsoft to solve some of these problems that have just had me scratching my head for so long. From hotlines and the amount of volume coming into hotlines, they have bought technology that can help not screen in or screen out calls of abuse, but be able to divert people who are calling the child abuse hotline for unrelated things like, where can I get food? Or how do I get this? Or how do I get that? These things are helping mitigate some of those challenges. The solution that I, that I explained, you know, we just went live in Arizona with a new child welfare information system, which is the entire system of record that was 25, 26 years old in Arizona and led to all kinds of bad outcomes. They've just gone live in Arizona with that. And that's going to be groundbreaking. And that is getting people mobilized, getting workforces out of mainframes, on the road, in the houses with the people, with tablets, with information that's coming into them and that they are entering right then and there. So everything is being done to spend more time with a vulnerable child, with a vulnerable family, and less time sitting in some cubicle somewhere doing data entry in some antiquated system. And when it comes to foster care recruitment, the amount of things that are being created to market potential families and then have this single point of entry, click here, next thing you know, you're in an automated process to learn about how to become a foster parent, apply to be a foster parent, set up your home studies, do all the types of things that you need to do to become a licensed foster parent. You know, so it's accelerating that time to actually get involved because what we noticed was today somebody wants to be a foster parent and they have a heart for it. But if you let them sit for six or seven or eight or nine months before it actually happens, well, they move on to some other charity or potentially they decided to do something else in life. And then, I mean, personally, the care coordination piece is something that is, you know, a holy grail for myself and so many other people. Whether I was investigating a homicide of a child or I was leading the system, almost inevitably, I would find out after the fact that multiple other systems were having touch points with this child and this family. And yet we're still looking at this catastrophe and the suffering that took place and saying, why is there no connectivity? I mean, we are an advanced place. And what I know is, is working in a, in a place like Microsoft, that's very partner dependent. Their approach is 
everybody that has a solution is a partner for Microsoft that can then be delivered to help in these types of problems that people are trying to solve. Well, the technology is not the problem. The, the public policy is often the problem. The will of the agencies is often the problem. Everybody has their own kind of autonomous or sovereign data system that they don't want to open up or share or change to integrate with somebody else. But really, that connection and that coordination and knowledge really would preempt a lot of the awful things that people experience, children experience, and the people serving those people experience. So, I mean, that is really a holy grail item for me. And again, that's why I'm at one of the greatest potential places on earth to drive some of these solutions for someone who's been seeking them for 28 years, you know, is a Microsoft. So I'm excited about it. Well, it's certainly true that these kids are and these families are being touched by multiple systems, whether it's education or the criminal justice system or public assistance of one form or another. So, yeah, getting all these systems to be able to talk to each other and to be able to tell us what's really going on behind closed doors, because that's the, the toughest part of this whole child welfare nut is often the information piece. You know, how do we know? So we're, we're thrilled that you are there, Greg, and look forward to to getting updates on, on what's going to happen next for you and where you're going to turn your attention. Does a similar position exist at other tech companies? I don't know. I mean, yeah, obviously. Job. No, yeah. I just think it's very, I just think it's a very forward looking role definition that Microsoft is playing. Obviously it's a for-profit company that's trying to sell software. They're not necessarily trying to solve child welfare issues. So I think it's a it's a very interesting first mover that hopefully will be replicated in other large companies. Well, I think I think what it is is obviously there's other companies out there that are, you know, driving what's called cloud services, but I mean, I'm not a technology person, but I know that if information can be readily accessible from anywhere in the world at any time, real time, that is a huge benefit to people serving vulnerable people, and it's a huge benefit to vulnerable people. Being tied to, like I said, a cubicle in a government office and dragging information out of an old system and putting information into a system you know, is a real drag and causes too much time to be lost where it should be emphasized. So cloud is, is the way it all is going. The, the federal government certified the system in Arizona for federal match to fund it because it is a cloud system that meets all those new federal requirements. So as other states get on board, it's going to be going to be groundbreaking in, in how they better their work and really help their staff be successful as well as bettering the outcomes of vulnerable people in their communities. Yeah, definitely. All right. Well, thanks again, Greg, for joining us. This has been another episode of Are You Kidding Me? I'm Naomi Schaefer-Riley. And I'm Ian Rowe. Thank you, Greg. Thank you for having me. You can get episodes of Are You Kidding Me wherever you get your podcast <laughs> channels or on the AEI website. <laughs>